You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Attaboy Clarence, episode 13. Nice to see you all. I think I've fixed the sound issues this time. Should sound a, a little less chamber pot. First of all, a big thank you to uh, the beautifully gorgeous fellows at Weekly Geek Speak who took the time at the beginning of their last show to, uh, to give a heads up to episode 11, Sex in Monochrome. Um, yeah, very kind words and very much appreciated. Thank you so much. Makes it all worth it. Speaking of ads... This is the cold season. What do medical authorities say about the common cold? Doctors tell us there's no known drug which will cure a cold. There are effective medications for treating complications accompanying or following a cold. If you've been taking sensible precautions and still have one cold after another, it's best to see your doctor. And here's another important health tip. When you have a cold and need a laxative, that's the time to rely on gentle X-lax. Pleasant-tasting, chocolated X-Lax helps you toward your normal regularity gently overnight. X-Lax gets along with any cold remedies you may be taking, and X-Lax works where nature wants, in the lower tract, not the stomach. Taken at bedtime, X-Lax won't disturb sleep, gives you the closest thing to natural action the next morning. You're well on your way toward your normal regularity without upset or discomfort. So when you have a cold and need a laxative, take X-Lax, the laxative you can use with complete confidence. X-Lax helps you toward your normal regularity gently overnight. Yeah, X-Lax ads. <laughs> they kind of make hatverts seem like a, a load of regularity, don't they? <laughs> I've had a couple of messages uh, over the past week or two about episode 11, Sex and Monochrome, about where people can find more information about uh, the pre-code era. Well, obviously, there are many resources on the internet, but um, my favourite, and the one I'd like to recommend to you highly, is uh, precode.com, and that's a, a P-R-E-code.com, um, which I found to be a very valuable source of information when I was researching. Um, he's basically going through each precode movie and reviewing it brilliantly. It's a real wealth of information. It's run by a guy called Danny. And uh, it's just a wealth of trivia, pictures, information. His reviews are always spot on. If you're at all interested in pre-code cinema, then please go to his site. It's a brilliant, brilliant site. Uh, you can also follow him on Twitter at, uh, at precode.com. That's uh, at P-R-E-C-O-D-E-D-O-T-C-O-M. Yeah, his name's Danny. Say hi. He's a great chap. Have you ever wondered why so many soldiers died in army hospitals? To find out how well camels agree with the throats of smokers, this far-reaching test was made. Hundreds of people from coast to coast, people with normal throats, smoked only camels for 30 days. Each week, leading throat specialists examined the throats of these smokers. 
They made 2,470 examinations and reported not one single case of throat irritation. Due to smoking camels, try camels for 30 days and see how mild, how flavorful, how enjoyable a cigarette can be. How mild, how mild, how mild can a cigarette be? Smoke camels and Here's Dick Powell with a special message. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, the makers of camels have sent more than 198 million gift camels to our armed forces. This week, gift camels go to hospitalized servicemen and veterans at Veterans Hospitals, Framingham, Massachusetts, and Durban, Michigan, U.S. Naval Hospital, San Diego, California, and to all hospitals operated for the U.S. Air Forces in the Far East. Now until next week, enjoy camels. I always do. Well, this week it's been all about horror films. Me. First film I want to tell you about is Captive Wild Woman. It's about it's about an animal trainer who's been on safari to catch new animals for his boss's circus, and he comes back with a lady gorilla called Sheila, who's uh, who's remarkably clever for a gorilla. Well, the trainer's girlfriend just happens to bring a mad scientist to the circus to meet the animals, and he notices how clever Chila is, and he hatches a plot to steal her and use her for his experiments. So he grafts human glands onto the gorilla, which turns the gorilla into this ridiculously sexy woman who can't talk. (laughs) Don't say it, boys. Uh, So he takes this girl to the circus and introduces her as one of his mental patients, uh, and then discovers that she has telepathic control over all the other animals in the circus, which they convey with one of the best special effects I've ever seen in my entire life. Uh, You get a shot of a lion or something, uh, and then a shot of her eyes, which widen ever so slightly. And then the lion or whatever it is, just climbs on a chair or something and stops roaring. So the trainer is obviously wowed by this mental patient's talent and does what anyone would do if a mental patient came to their circus and glared at the lions and made them sit on chairs. Um, he gives her a job. <laughs> he hires us to do an animal act. You'll never have an opportunity like this again. I tell you, that girl's power over animals is uncanny. Well, you saw yourself what she could do yesterday. Yeah, I saw it. I also saw you lying in that cage. It was only by the hand of fate that girl happened along. Well, that's what I'm trying to tell you. With her there, the axe is cinched to handle. Oh, a cage full of animals with a girl mixed up in it doesn't make sense, Fred. I don't intend to have her mixed up in it. All I need her for is to stand on the outside in case of trouble. No, I can't see it. I don't think you can do it, Fred. Well, if you stop now, it won't solve anything and certainly won't get you anyplace. Well, I'd rather not own a circus if the success of it depends on the lives of the performers. Oh, well, now you're talking as if those animals were out of hand and that isn't what happened at all. But... (laughs) But this is the gorilla, Chila, remember, who, who he brought back from the jungle. And uh, who, it now turns out, was in love with the trainer even when she was a gorilla. Uh, but because the trainer man has a girlfriend, the gorilla girl gets jealous. And when she displays emotion, she starts to turn back into a gorilla. In what I can only describe as the most realistic half-gorilla, half-sex-pop makeup I've ever seen. She basically uh, looks like Shia LaBeouf in Planet of the Apes makeup. Nice legs, though. <laughs> um, it's utter hokum, and the story is obviously a complete shocker, but it's ridiculous amounts of fun. It really doesn't give a regularity about making any sense, and it's one of the most unintentionally funny horror films you'll ever see. It might actually be the best one I've ever seen. Don't hold me to that. <laughs> 
second film is called The Man They Could Not Hang from 1939. Uh, this one stars <laughs> Boris Karloff as uh, Dr. Savard. Uh, he's a scientist who's obsessed with bringing the dead back to life and he finally thinks he's cracked it. So one night he performs an experiment on one of his pupils who agrees to be put to death so that Dr. Savard can bring him back to life. But the student's girlfriend runs and tells the police and they break in and arrest Dr. Savard before he can bring the boy back to life. Dad, what happened? That's what I'd like to know. It's very simple. I've created a technique for restoring the dead to life, and that young man volunteered to be my first subject. Now, if you gentlemen be so kind as to leave my house, I'll go on with my work. Did you kill him? I told you he volunteered. How did you kill him? I made use of certain gases that end life without poisoning the tissue. That's just what I wanted to know. Unlock my hands! I've got to restore that boy to life! Hello, Lieutenant. What's the trouble? Take a look at that box over there. Now, give me one hour, just one hour, to work on that boy. Why don't you give him a break? What have you got to lose? Nothing but my badge. Well, he's good and dead, all right. This man says he can bring that body back to life. What about it? <laughs> Fantastic. Inside of an hour, I can have that boy walking and talking and explaining it all to you himself. From what I've seen so far, I'd say Dr. Savard has developed a homicidal mania. Idiots. So, of course, it doesn't matter that he's got the boy's permission, or that he's the world's leading heart surgeon, or that if the boy can actually be saved, then he's pretty much the only person in the world who can save him. The police won't give him an hour to even try to save the boy's life, because if they did, they'd only, you know, cure death for the entire human race. Everyone would have eternal life, but, but no. <laughs> So he's charged with the boy's murder and convicted and sentenced to death, but he's arranged to have his body recovered by his medical partner who uses the methods that they were working on to bring Dr. Savard back to life, where he starts murdering everyone responsible for putting him to death. There's a great part in court just after he's been convicted, where Boris Karloff asks the judge for two minutes so that he can make a statement to everyone in court. So the judge gives him two minutes and he just walks around the court bollocking everyone for not finding him innocent. When those you love best lie dying, think back to this moment when you held their salvation in your hands and threw it away. Always remember that I offered you life. And you gave me death. I mean, you kind of have to suspend disbelief when you watch a universal horror film about a mad scientist who resurrects people from the dead. But when you get to the court scene, it seems really unbelievable that he just gets to walk around the court. And after he's bollocked everyone, the judge just says, OK, two minutes are up, hang him. Genius. When he comes back and starts killing the people who ruined things for him, it does become a slightly different film. It's a little bit, uh, and then there were none, crossed with the cat and the canary and the old dark house. He sort of sits them down to dinner after revealing that he's still alive and actually names the time that they're all individually going to be murdered. And the film then turns into this very well-paced suspense thriller with each of his prophecies coming true and this little group being whittled down one by one. It's a very effective, very interesting little film that really doesn't have the right to be as enjoyable as it is. It's just over an hour long, it's very light on its feet, and Karloff is uniformly superb as the mad scientist. Definite recommend. Great, great fun. Interesting note, the machine that Boris Karloff's character invents in the film, which is basically a big pump that keeps the heart and the lungs beating and breathing on his dead subjects while he works to bring them back to life, was pie in the sky when the film was released. It was the dream of a madman. But staggeringly, years later, 
the concept was put into practice and became known as on-pump surgery, where the heart would be disconnected from the patient and connected to the machine so that it could be worked on by the surgeon, who would then disconnect it and reconnect it to the patient. So while this was the stuff of fiction in 1939, it was a remarkably far-sighted theory to have had. third film is a genuine delight. It's called Supernatural and it's from 1933. This one stars Carol Lombard as Roma Courtney, who's possessed by the spirit of a serial killer called Ruth Rogen, who uses Roma to get her revenge against the fake medium who betrayed her to the police. This was a drastic departure for Lombard, who was primarily known as a comedienne, and apparently she resented having to be in the film and was constantly arguing with the director, Victor Halperin. But aside from that, it's a remarkably effective little chiller, especially from the point in the film where Lombard becomes possessed by the murderess. Warden, have you ever noticed that when a criminal is executed for some unusual crime, there is frequently an epidemic of similar crimes? Sure. A lot of imitators. I wonder. I wonder if they are imitators. Perhaps their will has been subdued. Now, Doctor, just because you are supposed to have psychic power... Oh, now, just a moment, please. Perhaps they've been possessed by another personality. A powerful, malignant personality without, well, without a body of its own. Her face changes dramatically. Her eyebrows become slightly more arched, darker even than they were before. It's a remarkable performance from Carol Lombard. She really does vamp it up. Also, Halperin's direction is particularly potent. He directs the hell out of the seance scenes. Lots of quick cuts and close-ups. And you do really feel the icy wind down the back of your neck as the, uh, as the spirit enters the room. There's this recurring device throughout the movie of a close shot on the eyes of uh, Carol Lombard where the rest of her face has been heavily distorted with dark makeup. And it really conveys the fact that she's been invaded by this black spidery presence. It's a first-class effect and it only adds to the intoxicating atmosphere of this film. It's by no means a perfect film and it does suffer from a slight case of the creaks, but considering it was made 81 years ago, it's a perfectly enjoyable supernatural thriller. Pre-code, too. There's a scene where uh, Lombard, who's possessed, is uh, trying to seduce Bavian, the, the fake medium, so that she can get close enough to murder him. And she pulls him down onto the sofa, where he quite slowly and clearly and deliberately uh, grabs her breast and caresses it. Murder, sex, seances, ghosts, revenge, definitely check it out. It's a superb early horror film and a superb example of Carol Lombard outside comedy. She's drop-dead gorgeous in this film, at the same time as being poisonously fatal. It's a really toxic mix of danger and sexuality. Perhaps the crown jewel of the films that I want to tell you about this week, though, comes from uh, 1945, and it comes from Britain, and it's called Dead of Night. Very interesting film, if only for the fact that horror films have been banned from production in uh, Great Britain during the Second World War. The government only wanted positive movies being made over here. 
Four directors directed this. Uh, Cavalcanti, uh, Charles Crichton, Basil Dearden, and Robert Hamer. They all take a section each. This is a portmanteau horror film, a bit like Creepshow, in that there are a few stories all sewn together with an overarching narrative. In this case, an architect uh, called Walter Craig, uh, played by Mervyn Johns, arrives at a country house for the weekend with a severe case of déjà vu. He's been having dreams about the people he meets there, uh, as well as the events that are going to take place that weekend. So it isn't a dream this time? I beg your pardon? Yes, it isn't a dream this time. I must be going out of my mind. Yes? Of course. Dr. Van Straten, you're a psychiatrist. You always treat me. You'll treat me now, won't you? Just forgive me, I don't quite understand the joke. It isn't a joke. Only wish it were. I've seen you in my dreams. Sounds like a sentimental song, doesn't it? I've dreamt about you over and over again, Doctor. That hardly turns you into a mental case. After all, recurring dreams are quite common. But how did I come to dream about you? And I've never set eyes on you in my life. It's very likely you've seen my photograph in the papers. That's why my face seems familiar to you. I don't think so. They all think it's pretty odd that he not only knows all about them, but everything that they're going to say and because he's obviously in the middle of some supernatural experience the assembled guests decide to recount their own experiences with the supernatural and their five stories are the short segments that make up the main film the first of these is a very chilling little tale about a racing car driver who's in hospital after a crash at one night he wakes up and notices that it's daylight outside. He goes to the window and looks down, and below his window is a hearse. The driver looks up and says, Just room for one inside, sir. Anyway, he goes back to bed and thinks nothing of it, until the day he recovers and leaves the hospital, and outside... Well, I'm not going to spoil anymore, because it's a very wicked little tale that will stay with you, I guarantee, but... It's a strikingly brief little sequence. The whole thing can't be longer than about seven or eight minutes, but it's a real gut-punch opening to the film that has this strange and quite necessarily disorientating effect on the rest of the film. The next story comes from the youngest guest, played by Sally Ann Howes, who would go on to play Truly Scrumptious in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang years later. Her little tale is about the time she went to a fancy dress birthday party at a stately home where all the children took part in a game of hide-and-seek. Got you! It's all right. I'll go quietly. Shh! Now, I'll stop here with you. When somebody else finds us, they pack in too, like sardines. Oh, it's cold in here. Colder? That better? Mm. No mortal cold, Sally. It's a cold from beyond the grave. What are you talking about? Believe it or not, this house is haunted. Well, she finds a great hiding place in a little room at the end of a staircase where, oddly, another child is hiding. The weird thing is, though, that this other child, whose name is Francis, seems to be frightened of being found by his sister, Constance. She hates me. She said she'd like to kill me. It's another brilliant little story, rather more like an urban legend than a stray ghost story. And that's what makes this film so unique. Later portmanteau films seem to stray towards stories that had a cliched narrative arc to them, um, whereas Dead of Night stories all seem more like campfire tales, more like snapshots than extended narratives. They're more anecdotal and, uh, as a result, a lot more terrifying than 90-minute ghost stories because they get to the point so quickly and they always end with a chill instead of a resolution. Doctor, may I hope that you'll be able to explain to me a happening which, put it mildly, has always puzzled me. It started a few weeks after we'd become engaged. 
It was April the 9th, to be exact. I remember the date because it was Peter's birthday. You know how difficult it is choosing presents for a man. They always seem to have everything they want. The next story is about a woman who buys her fiancé a large ornamental antique mirror for a birthday present. Occasionally, though, when he looks into the mirror, he sees a different room. It's that mirror. You remember me telling you that first evening? Well, it's got worse. Much worse. Every time I look in it now, I see that room. I'd really rather not talk about it. Gradually, this has the effect of causing him to lose his mind. And when she finds out from the dealer that the mirror used to belong to a man who murdered his wife, she starts to wonder if the same fate might be about to befall her. We then go to a lighter story about two golfers who are both in love with the same woman and decide to play a golf match to decide who wins her hand in marriage. We can't go on like this, old man. She's ruining my game. Mine too. Every time I take a stroke, I see her wretched face. I keep on hearing her tiresome voice, just as I'm swinging. They'll be raising our handicap soon. Yeah. She must choose one of us. But there's nothing to choose. We're both as good as Bobby Jones. Very nearly. I wish you were dead, old man. Be just as good if you were. George, I've got it. What? We'll play for her. Tomorrow morning, 18 holes. Match play? The loser to vanish from the scene. Forever. Pretty dear, man. Of course. Why didn't we think of it sooner? One of them cheats to beat the other, who commits suicide as a result, and returns as a ghost to haunt the man who cheated him. <laughs> it's definitely played for comedy. It even stars uh, Basil Radford and Norton Wayne as the golfers who were a comedy double act throughout the 30s and 40s. They made lots of films together as a comedy double act. Uh, the most notable one being uh, Alfred Hitchcock's The Lady Vanishes, where they played the stuck-up pompous Brits who end up helping to save Europe. Fantastic character actors and real archetypal British gentleman comedy actors of that era. They're utterly brilliant in this film. And while it is perhaps the least regarded section of the film because it strays toward the light-hearted, it's also a particularly memorable part of the film. Thoroughly British and hugely entertaining. The final section is perhaps the most famous and features Michael Redgrave as a ventriloquist who seems to somehow be taking orders from his dummy who uh, may or may not be alive. Ladies and gentlemen, Hugo and I are old friends. Dear old pals, jolly old pals. Exactly, but every now and then we have our little disagreements. You certainly disagree with me. Ah. Would you believe that this guy thinks he carries the act? Well, in one way, maybe he does. Come, come, you'll go. We must be going. Sure, sure, but there won't be much room in the dressing room. Not much room in the dressing room? Why not? I told the waiter to bring up a couple of sidecars, and the fool brought the motorcycles as well. Sidecars and motorcycles. Well, good night, ladies and gentlemen. Bonsoir, mesdames. Bonsoir, messieurs. Say good night, Hugo. Good night. Sleep tight. Wake up sober. It's a particularly chilling section, a little more nightmarish and perverse than the stories that have come before, with Redgrave physically assaulting Hugo, his dummy, in quick shots that actually make you wince. You can also see the alarm on the audience members who come to watch this seemingly innocent ventriloquist act and, and having to endure a domestic between a man and his doll, which ends in physical violence. It takes a severe turn for the macabre when uh, Hugo starts to court the attentions of a rival ventriloquist, which sends Redgrave into a jealous madness. Say, I sure like to know how you pull that gag. What gag? Because I don't quite Well, just now, before you came in. 
You know, for a moment, I could have sworn it was the dummy speaking. <laughs> and me, a pro. What did he say? Oh, no, don't let's start that all over again. About you and him. Oh, yes. But you know that. You wouldn't... You wouldn't ever do that, would you? Do what? I don't get you. Do what he was asking. Say, are you nuts or something? How in heck could I team up with Hugo? He's yours, isn't he? Yes, that's right. He, he's mine. Uh, what kind of a heel do you think I am anyway, that I try to steal another guy's act? Now, please don't misunderstand me. I, I don't distrust you. It's just that you don't know what Hugo is capable of. It was actually remade as the film Magic, starring Anthony Hopkins from 1978, directed by uh, Richard Attenborough, to great success. But it's a very chilling section here too, and it's sort of become infamous over the years. The final shot of Michael Redgrave as he sits in bed, having been completely taken over by Hugo, and talking to his rival without his lips moving is blood-curdling. Why, hello, Sylvester. I've been waiting for you. As if all that wasn't enough, the film also features a wickedly clever twist ending, which I won't even hint at, but it does leave you rather disorientated and genuinely disturbed. It's a dizzyingly good film, and if you're going to seek it out, which I obviously urge you to do, then do it justice by watching it in the dark with the sound turned up. It's ten times more delicious. Just don't regularity yourself. It's from the Ealing Studios, who very rarely put a foot wrong. They have an absolutely cast-iron pedigree. Kind Hearts and Coronets, The Lavender Hill Mob, The Lady Killers, The Man in the White Suit, uh, Whiskey Galore, just quality hit after quality hit. Be assured that Dead of Night does absolutely nothing to besmirch their good name. It's a dream of a film. The cast is impeccable too. You have the cream of 1940s British cinema here. Michael Redgrave, Googie Withers, Mervyn Johnson, Sally Ann Howes, Miles Mallison, Basil Radford, Norton Wayne. It was an absolute smash hit when it was released, and it's a remarkably fresh watch, even for modern audiences. I urge you to track it down and add it to your libraries. And for those of you that have already seen it and have been nodding along with a smile throughout this little review, dig it out, blow off the dust, and give it an airing. It's the kind of film that makes you proud to be British. And if you're not British, it's the kind of film that makes you want to be British. <laughs> Radio play for this week is, of course, a dark tale. I'm not actually going to tell you too much about this radio play. I think that not having any preconceptions about it will benefit your experience of it enormously. I would say that if you enjoy it, do Google it afterwards. It's from a show entitled Quiet Please, which ran from 1947 to 1949 and produced some of the most original radio programming from that era. To call it a horror show would be doing it a slight disservice, I think. That would almost be to simplify it too much. It's probably better to think of it as a dark fantasy show. It produced everything from straight horror to black comedy to surreal thrillers. One thing it never did, however, was compromise on quality. It only ran for two years and it never really produced a dud story. It also created its own metafiction, which ran throughout different stories at various points in the series. It was breathtakingly clever stuff. I've picked perhaps its most famous story, a disturbing little tale entitled The Thing on the Forble Board, which is best experienced with the lights down low and the headphones up high.
Mutual Broadcasting System presents Quiet, Please, which is written and directed by Willis Cooper and which features Ernest Chappell. Quiet, Please, for tonight is called The Thing on the Purple Board. Me, I'm a roughneck. Well, I was a roughneck, I mean, 20 years ago. A little too old, too slow now. Besides, I got a dollar now. I don't have to be a roughneck, you see. Married, got a nice home. Had to meet my wife. Hey, Mike. Her name's Maxine, but she likes to be called Mike. Mike! Yeah, I guess she's busy out in the kitchen someplace. Besides, she doesn't hear very well. Shame, too, she's so pretty and everything. Well, you'll meet her. Sit down. I was saying I was a roughneck. Well, no, that doesn't mean exactly what you think it means. A roughneck is an oil field worker, specifically a guy in a drilling crew. Call them roughnecks like you call a section hand on the railroad a gandy dancer, a garage hand a grease monkey. Same time you work around a drilling crew for a while, you're going to be a roughneck in every sense of the word, boy. A derrick floor or a forble board is no place for a guy with a bow tie. Because... Yeah, when you have to fool around with drilling holes that go farther down the ground than it is from the top of Pike's Peak down to sea level. Yeah, sure they do. By the time I was a roughneck, we'd got this one well down to 7,313 feet. That was a record. But last May, Pure Oil brought one in out in the Trona Valley in Wyoming at 14,309 feet. That, friend, is almost three miles. Quite a hole, that, huh? Sure, I don't think there's an oil man in the world that don't wonder one time or another what's down there besides rock and oil and gas. Oil that's made out of trees that died 20 million years ago. Oil that's made out of dinosaur bones. Oil that's maybe made out of the flesh and blood of men, maybe, that beat each other to death with a stone axe. Ate saber-toothed tiger for lunch. Hey, you get to wondering. You look at the cores that come up from way down there, and sometimes the little shells... Trilobites, mostly, that was alive when Manhattan Island, where New York is, was under half a mile of ice. We found something once, me and Billy Grunewald, and something found us. I'll tell you about it. We were down to around 5,400 feet. We'd set casing. We began to get water, so we had to stop drilling and cement off. Well, you see, when water begins to seep in the hole, you pull your drill pipe... Then you let down a cementing shoe inside the casing and you plug up the bottom of the hole, casing and all, with quick-hardening waterproof cement. Then when it's hard, you drill through the cement, go on down, and the cement outside the casing at the bottom keeps the water out. Well, we had the drill pipe all pulled and racked. The cement was setting, see? So we was shut down, waiting for it to harden. We'd been coring just before. Well, you see, a, a core drill is hollow. And as the bit digs down, it stuffs the drillings up inside it, so when you pull it out, you got a sample of the kind of stuff you're going through. And a geologist can tell a lot from that. So there's nobody around the rig except me that night. The rest of the crew's going into town. I was toasting some pork chops over the forge for myself, but I heard a car pulling up. Look out, it's Billy Grunewald, the geologist, and I give him a hello. Hi, Billy, come and have a pork chop. Hi, Porky. Ah. Where's everybody? They all went to town. I'm the whole crew. Yeah, I had three blowouts between here and Oxnard. Yeah, I wondered where you was. Ted said you'd be in here about three. Yeah, I would have been, except for my tough luck. Oh, oh I'm dead. Yeah, hungry? Starved. Yeah, I got six, no, oh, seven pork chops. And bread. And some coffee, kind of. Swell. Yeah, I got a bottle in the car. <laughs> We're going to have a banquet. 
Hey, where's that core? That's what I came up here to look at. Yeah, back there on the bench. Look at it after supper. Hey. What? Didn't you say you were all alone here? Uh Huh? I thought I heard somebody talking. Mm -hmm. I don't see anybody. Keep an eye on that pork chop. You won't have any supper. Yeah, I'm watching it. Here, let me put the coffee on. Like so. When did you finish cementing? This morning. Last tower only made about ten feet of holes, so Ted shut down before we get flooded out of house and home. Funny about that water. Mm, how? Oughtn't to be any at that level, according to my figuring. Well, there is. Is it salt? Sure, right out of the bottom of the ocean. Hmm, that's funny. Well, maybe I'll be able to tell something from the core. Yeah, I hope so. The last core I looked at, I'd have sworn we were getting into shale. Mm, Ain't seen none yet from the cuttings. That's funny. Here, your pork chop's done. Yeah, take some bread. Yeah, thanks. Oh, man. Good, huh? (laughs) Yeah, put on another. I had two already before you come. Yeah, much obliged. Yeah... You know, you never can tell what's down there. You get it all mapped and plotted out, all the strata. And all you know is what comes out of the hole. Yeah. Yeah, I'd like to go down there sometime if I was little enough. <laughs> never get you down a hole. Yeah, you'd fit. You're skinny. I'll stay up here and look at the cores, bud. Where is that one? Behind you. Over there. Hmm? Oh. Well, I'll have a look at it. Well, why don't you wait to finish your supper? I'm just going to look at it. Uh, put on another pork chop for me. Okay. Well, I wish I was screech out of the... What's the matter? Hey, wait a minute, Porky. Well, why do you... Listen. What's eating you? You, you know, I'd have sworn there's somebody up there on that portable board. Ah, you're crazy. There's nobody up there. Getting against those stands of drill pipes. Ah, they're just rack crooked. One of them slipped. Come on back and eat your pork chop. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess so. Only I... Ah, what you so jittery about, Billy? Come on, eat your sandwich. Here. Yeah, well, thanks, Porky. I don't know. I, I'm just naturally that way, I guess. I'm always scared of the dark. I'm scared. Doc, I, I, I hate to be a baby, but I can't help it. Scared of the dark? Honest? Stupid, ain't it? Oh, I don't know. Everybody's scared of something. Me? Spiders scare the tar out of me. Black widows. Oh. <laughs> I know how you feel, Billy. There another light over here? Yeah. yeah. Here. Ah. Oh. That's better. Hey, listen, uh, Porky. Go out to the car and look in the left-hand door pocket and bring back that bottle, will you? That's what I need. Okay, kid. Okay. So I picked up a flashlight. I turned around and went outside. I found the car. Then I got the bottle. And the floor of the derrick was all lit up. And when I saw a beam of light suddenly flash up toward the foble board, <laughs> I laughed. <laughs> Billy Grunewald and his ideas... Sure, I looked up. There wasn't a darn thing up there, except the drill pipe racked against the fingerboard. Oh, this, uh, forble board. Well, you've seen oil derricks or pictures of them. You know that little platform that runs around the outside of the derrick about halfway up? Well, that's the forble board. Well, you see, drill pipe comes in lengths, and you handle them with several lengths screwed together so as to save time getting them in and out of the hole. 
Two lengths is a double, three is a thribble, four is a fourble. When you pull a pipe, you heist it up inside the derrick of the traveling block, which moves up and down from the crown block at the top of the derrick. Then when a fourble of pipe is pulled out, it's held in the rotary table. You break the joint with tongs, like a great big stilts and wrench, you see. Snub a cable that's fastened to the handle over the cat head on the draw works, and that breaks the joint. Then you hold the tongs on the pipe, give the rotary table a few turns to unscrew it, you heist away with the traveling block and swing it over against the fingerboard, lean it against the derrick. The guy up on the foreboard board takes off the traveling block, you do it all over again until you got all the pipe out, you see? Well, there wasn't anybody up on the foreboard board uh, except a screech owl, and it flew away. So Billy turned his light off, and I come on inside. And just as I come up the steps, he let out a yell. Yay! What's the matter? What's the matter, Billy? Hey, come here. Look here. Well, what's it? Look, Porky. My... Where did you find that? Now, listen, Porky. I give you my word. That was embedded in the core. Why, it couldn't be. I tell you, it was. Look where I dug it out. You know what? That rock there comes from a mile underground. And it's been a mile underground for a million years. And look at this. And I did look. And what he was holding was a gold ring. And it was all carved and filigreed, just like jewelry. And there wasn't any kidding about it. It was real. Wait a minute. Hang on. I ain't done. I poked at the core of rock that looked like a, a kind of petrified salami or something. And then it was my turn to pretty near jump out of my pants. Because right alongside the place where Billy dug out the ring, there was a mud-covered but very unmistakable finger. I picked it up. And it was cold. And it was heavy. And... It was solid rock. At least it felt like solid rock. And I looked at Billy, and Billy looked at me. He started to rub the mud off this here stone finger. And as he rubbed it, it began to disappear. No, he could he could still feel it, he said, but when the mud was gone, neither one of us could see it. And he dropped it to the derrick floor. It went clunk, and we couldn't find it any place. So you know what we've done. When we took that bottle and we took and finished it, Billy and me, we finished it in one slug of piece and it was a full pint of bathtub gin. It tasted just like so much well water to me. And then we sat down on the derrick floor and we looked at each other. We didn't say a word. My eyes got heavier and heavier. The last thing I remember was I heard some kind of noise that seemed to be coming up from down on a foreboard board 80 feet above us. I shut my eyes a minute. I guess I went to sleep. And I had awful dreams. Black widow spiders crawling all over me with gold rings on their legs. Things I could hear, but I couldn't see up on the foreboard board. Billy Grunewald climbing up the ladder outside the derrick in the moonlight. 
faces looking at me, and I couldn't figure out who they were. Then I was waked up by a horrible scream. The crash alongside me that shook the whole derrick. I opened my eyes to see Billy Grunwald lying on the floor two feet away with a broken neck. With a broken neck and his left hand. Well, he put the gold ring on the little finger of his left hand and the way his arms were spread out, his left little finger and the ring were gone. Well, friend, I got out of there. I run down to where Billy had left his car and I got in. I stepped on the starter. And I couldn't get it to go and then I remembered after I'm pretty near run down the battery that Billy had taken a key. I wasn't going up there and go through a dead man's clothes to get it. So I sat there in the car and shivered all by myself till daylight. And then Ted and the crew came. Afterwards, a state cop and everybody in the world was asking me questions. Did you and Billy have a fight, Porky? I told you we didn't, Ted. But you had been drinking. We only had that little pint, Ted. Well, what was he doing up on the floorboard board? Did you threaten him, and did he run up there to get away from Listen, you? Listen, cop, don't be a chump. Billy Grunwald and I were good friends. Then why'd you push him off the floorboard board? I didn't, I tell you. I, I wasn't up there. Well, what did he go up there for? I don't know. I was asleep. How do you know he was up there? I didn't say he was. You said so. Besides... How would he break his neck if he didn't fall from way up there? Well, look, officer. I think it was just another accident. I mean, we haven't got anything on Porky, and personally, I don't believe he did it. Well, it's mighty mysterious. Uh, So it is. But we got work to do. Now, how about it? That cement's hard down there, and I want to start drilling again, and I'm shorthanded. Will you let Porky stay here till I run in my pipe again, and... Well, then you can take him and ask him questions till you're blue in the face. Well, Okay. Let's get rolling. You got steam up, Happy? I'm all set. All right. Porky, you go from the formal board. What? Not me, Ted. Oh, don't be such a boob. There's nobody up there to shove you overboard. And you can put a safety line around you if you want to. And besides, you're getting paid to do what you're told. I've lost too much time already. Okay, I go up on the forbo board. And you can bet I took a good gander around before I did anything else. Now I couldn't see a thing. So I signaled to the driller to let down the traveling block, and he did. Came sailing down from up above. I was just reaching for it to pick up the first forbola drill pipe. Gave a big jerk, and the cable broke. It dropped and nearly pulled me off the forbo board. And it landed right on top of Ted. And if you have any idea what a guy looks like after two tons of metal land on him from 80 feet up, you keep your ideas to yourself. Well, that was enough. Two accidents in a row. The whole crew quit. They they wasn't going to wait for a third. And it was Ted's money that was paying off. There wasn't any more. And as far as I know, the abandoned... Derek is still there. And that was 20 years ago. Oh, I forgot to tell you something. That traveling block was right in front of my face when it broke loose. It was hanging by steel cable, three-quarter inch steel cable. And I saw that cable break right before my eyes. It looked just like a piece of string when you snap it between your fingers. I could almost see the fingers 
You know what? There was something up there on the formal board with me. And so a couple of days later, I came back. I, I don't know if there's anything in the world as desolate, as dismal, as dead-looking as an abandoned oil well rig. There it stands like a skeleton off on a deserted side road in the bare yellow hills surrounding it, and, and it's the deadest thing you ever saw. I sat in my car for a long time looking at it. Everything was just the way we'd left it. I, I looked into the floor. The smashed traveling block was there alongside the rotary table. There was a little mutter of steam from the boiler. That was all. Then I heard a tinkle of something as it hit the ground alongside me. I looked around. There wasn't a soul in sight. But at my feet was the gold ring that Billy Grunewald and I had found in the core of rock that came from a mile underground and from a million years ago in time. And I heard a little sound. The sound of a kid crying. And there wasn't any kid up there. And I heard it again, and it came from above my head, and, and I... And I took out my revolver. I loaded it carefully. I started up the ladder to the forble board. Well, there wasn't anything up there, nothing I could see. But there was a voice crying. The voice of a little kid. And then there was a movement behind the rack of drill pipes, and I saw the pipe move, and I yelled, Come out of there, whoever you are! Come out, or I'll start shooting! And the stand of pipe shivered, and I thought, what can it be that can handle that heavy pipe like, like Jack Straws? And then there was a crash. The whole stand of pipe fell over, and I just got out of the way in time. And I was alone on the forbo board with the thing. But I couldn't see it. I felt the platform tremble under my feet again as something moved toward me. I fired two or three shots. And nothing happened. I started backwards. I knew it was following me because I could hear it meowing like a cat. My feet tripped over something. I saw it was a big can of red lead that somebody had left up there. Without thinking, I picked it up and I threw it at the sound and it splashed. And there it was. And I wish I... I wish... The face of a little girl, frightened, crying with hunger and terror. Hands like a human being and a finger missing from the left hand. And a body... Well, I'll tell you about that. I told you how I'm scared of spiders. But I knew where it came from. It had come from the bowels of the earth, come riding up on the drill pipe as we yanked it out of the well, come to an alien world, and was lost. It stood there dripping with red paint, blood red from head to foot like some horrible dream. And it put its hand on my arm. Its hand was stone, living, moving stone. And it looked into my eyes and mewed like a lost kitten. Twenty years ago, 
I discovered many things about it, what it used for food, that it was deaf, that it was invisible and couldn't see people when it was invisible. That if you sprayed it with mud or paint or grease paint, makeup, then it could see people. And believe me, I didn't want to see its body. I can see that in my nightmares. But its face. I can't help wanting to see that pathetic little girl face. I'm afraid maybe I've fallen. Ah, but it's very beautiful. And when it's well made up, it's... But making it up, rubbing grease paint on a stone face that looks at you and smiles and it makes sounds like a lost kitten yet. I can disguise the body in long dresses. She can't hear very well. And when she's hungry, I have to stay out of her way. I found out what she likes to eat, remember? No, no, sit still. Sit still, do. Sit still or I'll have to shoot you. I want you to meet my wife. Or rather, my wife wants to meet you. Mike. Mike. There she is. Come on in, dear. The title of tonight's Quiet Please story is The Thing on the Furbel Board. It was written and directed by Willis Cooper and featured Ernest Chappell. And Dan Sutter played Billy Grunwald. Pat O'Malley was Ted. And Cecil Roy was also a member of the cast. And that was The Thing on the Furbel Board from the show Quiet Please. Quick bit of admin. I'm on Get Lou, or TV Tag as it's now known, and my username is Audio Joe. I'm also on Letterboxd, where my username is Attaboy Clarence, all one word. If you'd like to keep up with what I'm watching as I watch it, do follow me on those two services. I update them religiously, and I'll follow you back. You can also follow me on Twitter at, at Attaboy C. Uh, like the Facebook page, just search for Attaboy Clarence. And if you leave me a review on iTunes, I will buy you an ice cream. Next week it's competition time again. But until then, thanks for recommending, thanks for subscribing, and thanks for getting in touch. I've had some great messages from people in the past week. Always lovely to hear from you. Always puts a smile on my face. Until next time, stay safe, stay cool, and stay regular. Bye for now. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.